Welcome everyone to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much, much more. We have a fun poppy show for you this week. We're going to talk to Samuel Porteous about the new uh, semi-disastrous DC movie Shazam, Fury of the Gods, and resident odds maker and food lover Daniel Cohen will be here to talk about the new season of Top Chef, Top Chef Season 20, which is taking place in London and is a global all-stars edition, so there's lots of fun stuff to discuss about that. But first, The Mandalorian is back, and it's more confusing than ever. The plot has thickened in The Mandalorian, and I have called upon our resident Star Wars expert, Scott Gold, to help me unpack what is actually going on on The Mandalorian on Disney+. And he will be right back with me to talk about it after this self-produced musical interlude. The Mandalorian is back for a third season of his solo show on Disney+. Plus. He also had a few episodes, solo episodes, on the Boba Fett show that aired uh, last year. This is, of course, the Star Wars cinematic television universe character. He debuted on TV, so uh, he's really, he's never been on a big screen before. uh, And uh, it feels like The Mandalorian has been with us forever. As Scott Gold is here to talk to me about The Mandalorian, he's our resident Star Wars expert, and uh, he's going to explain to me what the heck is going on. Hello, Scott. Hey, Neil. Great to be back, man. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I have, we all have, I think, a real soft spot for The Mandalorian because the show debuted right as uh, the government was forcing us to all uh, stay inside our houses uh, back in 2020. And, you know, the show was kind of this nice, refreshing uh, balm. It was a fantasy world into which we could escape. And it's still going on. And it's changed gears a lot since then. I mean, I, I, I'm honestly having trouble kind of figuring out what's going on with the story. Maybe you could explain it to me a little bit. Sure. Uh, we're definitely seeing uh, a big, um, if not narrative, then definitely thematic shift for the third or rather third and a half ith season of The Mandalorian. Uh, so to catch us up, what's going on is that we have uh, our hero Mando and his boy Grogu have been reunited. That was a big arc in previous seasons, uh, and especially season two. And there were a couple of episodes of The Book of Boba Fett that were almost entirely devoted to the Mandalorian. And that's, you know, uh, definitely the uh, source of a lot of criticism for the book of Boba Fett, but for Mandalorian fans, we love it. Uh, And so we got to see Luke, uh, uh, Luke Skywalker, and we got to see what was going on with him. And we uh, we were able to see the Mandalorian, uh, Din Djarin, take Grugu, complete his mission, take Grogu back to Luke and return him to his people. Grogu, otherwise known as Baby Yoda. Baby Yoda, yes, I'm going to use those interchangeably. Uh, It took me a long time to start using his name, but I got to say, it stuck on me a little bit. I know there's some holdouts out there, but I'm just going to go ahead and call him Grogu um, because apparently that's what he likes. (laughs) um, It's his name. It's his name, right? And uh, so Din Djarin brings Grogu back to Luke and... uh, Luke notices that uh, Grogu's heart is a little conflicted. He has an attachment, which, of course, the Jedi are all about kind of getting away from all of their attachments. It's a very Buddhist kind of philosophy. Um, and he gave Grogu a choice, whether he wants to go with, uh, you know, his, uh, 
his foster dad and go the way of the Mandalorian or stay with Luke and become a Jedi and basically take Ida Din essentially forever. Uh, and Grogu just, you know, he had that love in his heart for Mando and uh, he came back and they put him in this uh, adorable little Beskar chainmail sweater uh, and now they're back together again. Also, we got to see um, Din has a cool new ship that is very not practical for a bounty hunter, but it is neat as hell. It's a Naboo N1 Starfighter. It's very fast. It's very live. Very different from the Razor Crest, which is his big, bulky, essentially, you know, space RV. You know, he's gone from a space RV to a space Corvette or a space Lamborghini at this point. And yeah. it's got a, a little droid turret. Uh, and of course, Mando doesn't particularly care for droids, but it's just the right size for Grogu to sit up in the back and and uh, just, you know, the, it, it has all the right look for just really great toys, which of course we know Lucasfilms is all about. So they're off on, on their adventures. However, the big complication is that Din has been considered an outcast or an apostate because he admitted to the armorer. Uh, that he had removed his helmet, which, of course, in his uh, culty sect of Mandalorians is a huge taboo. And she tells him, well, you're, you're considered outcast and apostate uh, until you can bathe in the living waters of Mandalore. And he's like, okay, ritual bath. The problem with that is that the Empire all but completely destroyed Mandalore by bombing it to hell. And most of the Mandalorians think that the planet is, if not cursed, then definitely, you know, nuclear fallout, poisoned, like who knows what's even left. So none of the Mandalorians think that he'd even be able to do it or if it's even possible. But he being, you know, tried and true to the creed is like, I'm going to go find out. So he goes to visit Bo-Katan Kree's who has a long backstory in the Star Wars Empire that stretches across the Clone Wars and Rebels, uh, Dave Filoni's animated series that are brilliant. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're cartoons, but they get pretty, pretty deep into it, and, and they have a lot of feeling, and highly recommend those. Um, so we get to know Bo-Katan Bo more in those series, but uh, at this point in time, Bo is basically, she failed to unite the Mandalorian people, and she's sitting in her castle on a moon outside of Mandalore, sitting on a throne, sulking alone, which is where we find her. And Din asks her for help finding the living water. She says, uh, I don't think, you know, they're there, but this is where they were. You know, good luck to you, buddy. And of course, she's very suspicious of Din because he holds the Darksaber, which is the symbolic element of uniting all Mandalorians. So she has her eyes keenly on this guy because she wants to lead and she doesn't, you know, really know what to think of this dude. Our people are scattered like stars in the galaxy. What are we? What do we stand for? Being a Mandalorian is not just learning about how to fight. You also have to know how to navigate the galaxy. That way, you'll never be lost. Forgiven for my transgressions. May the force be with you! This is the way. There's something dangerous happening out there. Honestly, like you explaining that, I, I oh okay, that's what's going on. Because I, sometimes I watch these shows and I and I watch them mostly because I'm like, oh, that's an enormous lizard thing coming out of the water. That's kind of cool. 
or I will, oh, I like that that creature's head, you know, and that, <laughs> that's kind of the level I w- I'm still watching Star Wars like like, like a seven year old um, at, at this point. And, you know, I, I I guess I'm I guess I'm grooving into what, what they're doing. The, the thing that I found kind of strange was it, as we're talking, there have been three episodes that have aired of uh, this season. The third episode was essentially like a uh, what they call them, a bottle episode where they go to Coruscant, which is the capital of the Republic, once of the Empire, Republic, then the Empire, then the Republic again, the capital city, the Tokyo or the New York City of Star Wars. And they basically like have a sort of a Andor for kids where there, there's this kind of um, bureaucracy, bureaucratic mystery. There's sort of a kind of a gritty reality episode featuring a couple of side characters from an earlier season. And I, I found that kind of strange, honestly, because, you know, the thing about the Mandalorian that was fun and good was that it was this kind of swashbuckling um, Saturday morning serial style show that uh, harkened back to the old Star Wars, right? That what we loved about the old Star Wars, which was like action and kind of melodramatic intrigue and fun creatures. And then Andor was a completely different show and in that it was more of like a realistic, like almost like a crime drama or a 70s spy thriller. And I felt like um, The Mandalorian was like trying to tap into that a little bit, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like I said at the at the at the top of the show, there's a, been a, a dramatic narrative uh, or thematic shift in the Mandalorian when we cut away and we have you know a, a, an episode that's very similar to what the that Andor was trying to accomplish. And you know here we're getting a kind of post-war Berlin feel or a post-war World War II feel where we have a sort of the rebels are doing you know, their version of Operation Paperclip, which uh, if uh, any of you have read up on your American history is when uh, the United States basically um, gave amnesty to a bunch of ex-Nazi scientists so they could work on the U.S. space program, most famously Werner von Braun. So, you know, here we have, um, you know, Dr. Pershing, who's, you know, declared that he's, you know, going to you know, he's made his mistakes, but he's doing everything he's doing in the name of progress and goodness and science. And so he just wants to be on the up and up and do his science. And of course, you know, the uh, the, the new um, republic isn't really going to let him because his science is cloning and there's still some major ethical issues, especially, you know, considering, you know, there was an entire clone army. And if you get deep into the lore, you find out about all of those ethical issues there. And so they're like, nah, we're not going to really let you do that. And, uh, you know, so we do get that intrigue. And what I think we have to keep in mind is that, you know, John Favreau and Dave Filoni are setting this up for a much bigger arc. So this is all going to become very, uh, very important later. And I know people are saying that it was a slow episode and it wasn't as action packed. Uh, and I agree with that, but I think it's definitely going to pay off in the long run. But in the well, meantime, on the opposite end, yeah. we've gone from spaghetti westerns and samurai movies, which were, you know, they, you know, leaned into real hard at the beginning of The Mandalorian, which were the inspiration of George Lucas for the first Star Wars film. And they've gone from that into biblical movies. And that's the big, like, big biblical narratives. And that's the big uh, thematic shift. So mm-hmm. Din Djarin has gone from you know, kind of like a Ronin or a gunslinger. And he has basically become Space Moses 
or maybe even Space Spartacus. But, you know, a lot of people are seeing uh, some similarities between the Mandalorian people and the Jewish people. Uh, you know, there are all sorts of fan theories involving that because they're people, you know, it's like, oh, they never remove their head coverings and they take ritual baths to cleanse from sins. And they uh, are, are, you know, have been, you know, bombed and turned into a diaspora people and there's there's I'm not gonna believe I'm not gonna believe it until they eat bagels on Sundays Scott I'm sorry hey they had they had blue space macaroons I (laughs) don't know why they couldn't have like pink bagels or you know rainbow bagels exist you know why not in the Star Wars universe yeah all right so look you're obviously like one of the world's biggest star Wars fans. And I ad- admire and appreciate that. I, and, and you know, my, my level of depth with star Wars does not, does not go as deep as it, as it once did. So what I'm picking up from you is that there is, there are narrative threads and lore um, that I just am not tuned into, uh, which to me like feels like a bit of a problem with a mainstream series like the Mandalorian, which is like the marquee series airing on Disney Plus right now, is like you're essentially asking people who may not have um, watched uh, all the kind of sideshows um, or read the comic books or the novelizations or whatever to like tune into a bunch of lore. Um, so I don't know. I find, I mean, it's not like I haven't enjoyed watching it. It's like it, it, you know, it when it appears on Wednesday, we watch it. You know, so it's, obviously, what yeah, are you going to so, not watch the Mandalorian? I mean, you right, have- right. So it's not like I'm like, oh, my God, this sucks. I won't watch it because there's always cool shit to see in it. But but at the same time, I feel like, you know, we have tra- we have spiraled at this point. We are like deep into um, the Star Wars equivalent of the multiverse. Right. Like this is. Yeah. Yeah. I think this, this is-, is this is this is like deep cut. I mean, we're you know, it's like you said, it's season three and a half. So we're no longer like you know, in, introducing what's fun about a character. Yeah. And that's, you know, that is the tightrope that the creators of the show really have to walk, really have to walk. And I think they're doing a really good job of it, of satisfying both the hardcore fans who have gone deep into the lore and, you know, all of the movies and TV shows, but also video games, books, like you, you name it, like comic books, it goes so deep. So how are you going to satisfy some of those people while satisfying a more casual audience? And I think they're doing a good job I think the third episode is not indicative of that because it is kind of a slow burner that's going to have a payoff later. I'm pretty convinced about that because I don't think they do anything trivially. Like we saw Elia Kane, who is the uh, Imperial Mole that we meet. Uh, We actually met her in season one or season two, and the camera kind of lingered on her character and people were speculating like, who is this chick? Like, why are, you know, are we forced to like linger focus on her face? But it's because she comes back and, you know, she's clearly an Imperial mole who's, uh, you know, going to be instrumental in the beginning of not just the First Order who that we see in episodes uh, seven, eight, nine of the films uh, or the, the, the second uh, or the third trilogy, I guess. And uh, I don't know, the, the bad trilogy, the really right. bad and, trilogy. And, but it's also, you know, they're kind of retconning the whole, uh, one of the worst twists in Star Wars history, which is Palpat- somehow Palpatine returned. Yeah. So... They're trying to figure that out, but I think I think they're doing a good job, and I think it's going to pay off. You know, third episode is always a little bit hard. Like, uh, but you know, the one thing we didn't mention is talking about payoffs. Is in, in episode two we see for the first time in live action Star Wars a freaking mythosaur. 
Uh, and I, like as a fan, like the Mythosaur skull is the symbol of the Mandalorians going all the way back to Boba Fett's first appearance. And so that's like deep, deep, deep cut. And we find like we haven't even seen one. And it's been alluded to since the very first season of the Mandalorians where Nick Nolte's quill says, your people once rode the great Mythosaurs. So we like that's the kind of thing he, that was said in the first season. And now we're getting to actual Mythosaurs now. So there's nothing on accident here. I have full faith in Favreau and Filoni that there's going to be a huge payoff, probably in the form of Chekhov's Mythosaur that is, you know, glancingly seen in episode two. And just like the Rancor in the Book of Boba Fett, we're probably going to, like, almost definitely going to see uh, Din Djarin riding a Mythosaur at some point. My guess is in the last episode of the season. All right. Well, we're a long ways off from the Ewoks blowing up the second Death Star in 1983. That's for sure. Uh, come Mandal- a long way. Long, long way. The Mandalorian season three is now airing. Um, I will um, I'll give you all Scott's phone number if you need him to explain anything to you. Scott, thank you so much. May the force be with you. And with you. We will annihilate everything. Champions of this realm can do nothing to stop us. You are very menacing. I just want you to know that. A lot has changed in the last few years. The wizard gave me superpowers. And then everybody got superpowers. Started from the bottom, now we're here. All right, here's the situation. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. The daughters of Atlas are coming to hunt us. Children stole the power of the gods. You ripped it from our father's core. Okay, I feel like maybe I should be writing all this down. Give us the powers, child. Your world will not survive this. You want these powers? Come get them! There's been a lot of drama surrounding the DC Cinematic Universe in recent months. Director-producer James Gunn has taken over the uh, reins at DC and is retconning and redoing uh, everything. But before that happens, we have a number of movies to get through that were completed before Gunn took over. And the first of those movies arrived in theaters uh, this week. It is Shazam! Fury of the Gods, a sequel to the 2019 Shazam! movie. And uh, our resident DC Universe expert, Samuel Porteous, joins me today from Shanghai, China, the largest city in the world where Shazam! has opened. Just like it opened in Austin, Texas, not the largest city in the world where I live. Hello, Sam. How, how are you? <laughs> Great, Neil. How are you? Yes, you're good. Uh, even though I know that from an email that you were a, a big fan of Shazam! Fury of the Gods. Oh, yes. No, yeah, of course, you just... Um, I, uh, I I think it it, it was a fa- it wasn't a great movie, not even probably a good movie, but it was fascinating to watch the construction, all the everything they threw at the screen in magpie fashion, both you know screenplay and special effects. It was quite remarkable. Yeah, it's it's a real mismatch. You know, you know the thing about the Shazam movies is 
I don't know. I don't know if you saw the Dwayne the Rock Johnson Black Adam. Yeah, Black Adam was such a dour, unfun, um, uninspired you know piece of work where the the Rock was clearly trying to like become the center of the DC universe, and and so it was really an unpleasant experience. Whereas I feel <laughs> like the Shazam movies are at least you know have a, you know a, a good sense of humor and a kind of a cartoonish legitimately cartoonish spirit about them. I mean, they're, you know, the color palette is bright. Uh, yes. There's a lot of kids. There's, you know, there's, there's you know, it, it at least makes an attempt at being fun. And I think that was the case, particularly for the first installment of the franchise. I think that sort of hit on all cylinders. And Zachary Levy was just, you know, I think perfect. You know, he's engaging, personable guy. But, but I think what happened in this, as we got into the second element, all, all the second uh, 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 edition of the franchise, all those elements sort of became diminished. And you had this um, cacophony of, you know, from an artistic direction side, something that was quite, you know, incoherent. You had like bits of Harry Potter. You had Stranger Things, like you had the Harry Potter library. You had the strange vegetation um, with the pods from Stranger Things. You had really oddly bad uh, green screen flying projection um, shots. Did you notice that? Like when they were flying in the sky, yeah. you could see the outline. And it was like it was Mighty Morphing Power Rangers or something. So uh, yeah, that's a good well, another thing I well, you mentioned Zachary Levy. You know, the the thing about the movie that I found odd is that you know he's supposed the, the whole premise of Shazam is that he's a boy who, uh, when he says the magic word, becomes a ma- like a man, like a superhero. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the first movie, that made sense because the character who played Billy Batson, <laughs> Shazam's also ego, was a boy. Yes, you know, a naive like queen yeah. almost, like a thirteen, fourteen yeah. year old. In this movie. He's a man. He's an 18-year-old man who then turns into a bigger man. And, and, and Zachary Levy's, um, you know plays him like a 12-year-old, like, a, like a kind of a dumb 12-year-old, whereas Billy Batson... Exactly. Whereas Billy Batson is obviously like an intelligent, sensitive 18-year-old. So it made no... It, it, they were like, they were, it's like they were different people. They're and, two different people. Yeah. And that's not the point of the movie. You know, the other characters... Uh, the the other rest of the Shazam no. family, when they turned into their superheroes, they were the same person, just older, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of bizarre, and it made yeah. it hard to watch. And he was real, and it just wasn't funny. Uh, also, another thing about the movie is that it was kind of horny. Like, I mean, there's a whole scene where like where yes. Billy has a wet dream about Wonder Woman. <laughs> it's like, what the what the hell, <laughs> you know? And also, the I mean. You know, there are a lot of good-looking women, like scantily clad, good-looking women in this movie, uh, surprisingly so. Well, well, the line also, the line, the one, like, this movie just was like a magpie grabbing images, iconic images. Like, they even had Wrath of Khan, like they had, you know, the, the hands clasped through the glass scene from Wrath of Khan, you know, with the dome as Spock dies and, you know, um, grass, you know, pushes his hand against Kirk's and, 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 you know, right. And then we had the Simpsons dome episode, 
you know, so they, and the almost famous line, like, you know, when the plane is going down, everyone shouts out the secret and one guy's secret is he's gay. Right. And they, they, they just repeat all these things, but on the, on the, um, the sort of, uh, what you were talking about with the, 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 the sort of sexuality of the film, it was interesting, like the relationship, one of the interesting things was the relationship as you sort of hint at with wonder woman. And the, the one sort of original line in the movie that was sort of interesting was when, as you say, like, you know, barely 18, not yet 18-year-old Billy Batson Shazam says to Wonder Woman, hey, just because I have, you know, the powers of your father coursing through me doesn't mean we're related. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of fun. it's kind of funny. Like, and then there's also, you know, Captain Marvel Jr., yeah, as he's called, but, his relationship with this, like, you know, ancient goddess uh, played by Rachel Zegler from from West Side Story. You know what? What is what? What is what? A, what? A, yes. I mean, and, you know, she is, Rachel Zegler is a, is a, a lovely uh, person to look at, um, but but she well, didn't have Steven Spielberg <laughs> to to bail her out here. <laughs> you know. <laughs> And yes. So, yeah. No. It, it, it was quite something. You saw the limits of of her abilities. Well, and then let us add to the to this layer cake, this weird layer cake, uh, Helen Mirren yes. and Lucy Liu, uh, you know, giving these incredibly, strangely wooden performances. Oh man! Like what, those two. Like I hope they got their you know cash their checks. My goodness, grim. Yes, grim, and you know, like this ends here. No, no, no. Like the lines they had were excruciating. So I can, I feel their pain, but my goodness. Yeah. Not a lot of effort coming from that end either. There was one funny scene where Helen Mirren reads this sort of like ransom note written by it, like, like kids, you know, sitting on her throne and her, in her mystical realm. Yeah. 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 That was, that was like a legitimately funny, you know, here's the thing. Like, this is not, you know, this, and there's also a couple of characters who meet like needlessly gory deaths, even though the movie is itself supposed to be PG-13. The, one, the, the, the most egregious thing uh, was the Skittles product placement. Yes, of course. Right? Oh, my God. Horrific. And, and telegraphed, repeatedly, painfully telegraphed from the kid carrying the yellow Skittles to the, you know, how much did Mars Wrigley pay for that product placement? And, and, and those unicorn horses with the, like, you know, leggings, the hairy leggings, like these horses with hairy leggings. And that, that the, one of the uh, Marvel, Captain, Captain Marvel characters, the young uh, black girl yelling, um, taste the rainbow motherfuckers. You know what? Yes. Uh, they, cut, they cut motherfuckers out right before she said it. But I mean, but yes. I mean, it, yes. Yeah. The version I saw, Very they true. had it. <laughs> Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. All right. So, yeah. All right. So, so look, I mean, I, this is obviously, this is not a good movie and um, you know, there, there's no, there's not really a lot of excuses to be made for it, but it's, it is also again, like, you know, bright and like, you know, harmless and compare and, and doesn't, doesn't try too hard. Like Black Adam was trying so hard and failed so badly. And this, this does not fail quite, quite as badly, but I guess, you know, the thing that it does, especially in its end credit sequence, is the great retcon has begun, right? Yes. You can see the outline, right? And so maybe speak a little bit before we go, but speak a little bit about what this maybe portends for a, a, 
uh, James Gunn run, more coherent DC cinematic universe in the future. Yeah. Like you had pointed out that this this sort of the Shazam franchise seems geared maybe like a few years younger than the DC franchise, which again is a few years younger targeted than what we saw with Marvel, right? So um, I think what we're seeing is as certainly you know sort of in the reorg, this uh, Marvel family, uh, which you know again it, it's it, most of the characters are completely forgettable. Outside, you know, Shazam. Shazam, right? family. Yeah, Shazam family. Yeah, they're completely yeah. forgettable. But what we see, as, as you say, is the Easter egg at the end after the credits, after the 30 or so CGI companies they employed all to offer a different artistic imprint on this, you know, incoherent from an artistic perspective, uh, visual perspective movie, you had a flagging of the Justice Society. And so, of course, the Justice Society was the earlier iteration of the Justice League, which in many ways was far more interesting than the Justice, uh, the Justice League. And you see two of their classic characters. I certainly recognized what I suspect is Black Canary, who, you know, is, um, is, is an interesting character. And she was walking with someone. I'm not sure what character. No, those, okay. No, so those, those are, um, that's actually, those are both characters who work for Amanda Waller. Okay. Um, and they're like, they're just like secret agents, basically. Okay. I wonder. Okay. Okay. Cause I thought yeah, the blonde. Super, okay. Okay. Cause I thought the blonde would look the blonde very much like black canary. Okay. That's interesting. She does look, she does look, yeah. Those, those are like secret agent characters. They appeared in DC's Peacemaker. Why do I know this? Okay. Um, so they're playing the Samuel Jackson. Those are not. They're playing the Samuel Jackson role. Yeah, exactly. So what they're so basically, like what they're trying to do is, you know, they've obviously decided they're going to keep Zachary Levy and they're going to like um, they're going to try to move Shazam into the larger uh, DC universe. I don't know. I mean, look, DC has been such a mess for so really? long, and you know, it remains to be seen uh, whether or not uh, James Gunn is going to be able to clean up clean up the mess. And judging from Shazam: Fury of the Gods. He's got a long, long way to go. Well, he certainly does. But Justice Society does yeah, present a so, great option. Dr. Fate appeared in Black Adam. So, um, again, he's a Justice yeah, Society. Yeah. Well, and, well, and died. Yes. And died. So we'll have to, well, again, it's magic. One of the good lines in, in the, uh, in the uh, Shazam movie, of course, one of the few good lines was magic kills magic. And that is the issue of with all this... You know, where do these powers come from? How do these, you know, endless plethora of villains and worlds and heroes interact? How can you have a earth-shattering threat arrive and only have the Philly, you know, the Philly, the Philly part of the squad show up to address it? it it's all fascinating. Yeah, stuff. well, that's, a, that, that, that's another thing, too. It's like this is a movie about... Um, ancient immortal gods threatening not not all of philadelphia just yeah. like a small part of downtown philadelphia <laughs> you know yeah a part of the world that most people would be happy to see housing <laughs> <laughs> prices would only go down yes all right uh samuel porteous uh, uh sorry to make you go see shazam i hope it wasn't too painful for you give me the flash will be better this summer we'll talk to you then It's the time of the year for the greatest tournament that uh, anybody watches on TV every year. I'm talking, of course, about Top Chef. Uh, we're uh, in the middle of, we're at the beginning of, actually, of Top Chef 
World All-Stars, a global edition of Top Chef. It's the 20th season of the cooking competition on Bravo. It's sort of it's the pinnacle of cooking competitions. It's the Escoffier of, of cooking shows, I guess. Uh, Daniel Cohen, our resident uh, gaming expert and our resident food television expert, is here to talk to me about it. Hello, Daniel. Hi, Neil. How are you? I am hungry as usual, and uh, you know, and and World All Stars. I guess it's 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 making me a little bit hungrier. I as we're talking, um, the first episode has aired, and by the time anyone listens to this, at least two or three others will have will have also aired, or at least one other. And so I think it's a good time to lay the odds because there's still all these all the possibilities. But you know, as you pointed out in your in your piece uh, on the site. It's already pretty clear who the uh, favorites are. I I think so. I think that there's a couple of chefs that are just you know leaps and bounds ahead of the rest, and it's not it's not totally surprising who you know at least one of them is just because he Buddha who just won Top Chef Houston and kind of won it running away um, decided to come back for this right away, which is unusual for an American Top Chef contestant who are usually moved on to uh, bigger and better things by now. But he apparently really enjoys this format and has not has decided not to uh, partner up with the likes of Guy Fieri and uh, whoever else is on the Food Network. Yeah, he's not. He's not. He's not. It's mostly Guy Fieri, as far as I can tell. Guy Fieri, or you can become Gordon Ramsay's second banana, is also a, an option, I guess. One, th- th- those are the options, or you can just become a Food Network star on your own. Yeah, he just Budalo, um is is there, and the other I'd say. Um, runaway favorite is this uh, Spanish woman named Begonia. Um, that is uh, not like the flower. There's a there's an N with a, with a tilde in there, and uh, she is a, a a Michelin star chef. And when my wife and I were watching it, my wife was like, "Why is she on Top Chef?" Cooking? Hey, I think everyone had the same reaction when they saw that because it doesn't really make any sense. Usually, the people that are on that are on Top Chef are you know on their way to eventually earning one years and years down the road. And this is sort of a resume builder. She's already built the resume. <laughs> she's, yeah. she's already got the star. So I'm not really sure what the point of this is, but I suspect we'll get into it as the season goes on because she's not going anywhere for a while. No. Oh no, no. And you know, she's, she was very composed in the first episode. She made a very composed, very fancy looking dish. And it was like some sort of, nest of vegetables in a sauce or it was it was a yeah it was some sort of bird's nest made of butternut squash and i didn't really get what the point of it was but everyone loved it it looked it amazing was, like it was fine dining for sure yeah yeah so uh so those are the two favorites you know and there's some interesting choices in the cast like they they're all the all-stars are they're pulled from various editions of top chef around the world so you have people who won in the middle east and People who a guy who won in France who was the first person to go out, uh, showing once and for all that French cooking is no longer uh, on <laughs> at the top uh, of the pyramid, but uh, from various countries. But then there's several Americans in there, and well, there's know, the, there's a specific reason why French cooking is not at the top of the pyramid in Top Chef, and that is because of the uh, <laughs> the extremely different format of Top Chef France, which is about as French as it could possibly be. The judges pick the ingredients. Yeah, and you get 90, 90 minutes and a cigarette break for the quick fire. You get a you actually get a cigarette break? I I'm not, I don't think you actually get a cigarette break. Yeah, yeah, they, you have to go out and you smoke in the alley with the waiters. Uh, uh, these <laughs> these, these Americans, they, they are how you say garbage. 
Yeah, you put the you put the ashes in the soup pot. Uh, but there's other Americans in the competition. But you know, these are like um, I feel like the other Americans they chose for the show were just kind of people who had uh, whose Q rating was fairly high when they appeared on Top Chef and the the first time, like Don Burrell. Uh, yeah. There's a guy's guy named Amar and uh, and Sarah from Kentucky, all of whom were uh, appealing contestants in their own rights, and all of whom went admittedly to the finals, but like were not winners. You know, and it's just kind of like who we could get or who was it, who we could, uh, who we thought was entertaining. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the problem as I, I kind of alluded to in the article is that a lot of people from the Top Chef world have sort of shown up on other cooking competitions by now. And, and, and specifically on the Food Network right now, there's this thing called Tournament of Champions, which has a, a number of the best Top Chefs in it, really kind of a stacked field. But, uh, should we, have you watched yeah, this? It, should, we, should, we, should, we, should we briefly detour and talk about yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. Tournament of Champions is Guy Fieri's uh, – it's like his bracket show uh, where he gets 32 chefs uh, to, to compete one-on-one against each other. And, and what looks to me like to be a fairly cheap Los Angeles soundstage. And it's in front of a studio audience of approximately 30 hooting and hollering random, randoms who came out of the Price is Right line. And, um, you know, and it's, and they're, are introduced like it's like the world wrestling entertainment uh, finals. And uh, they come out, they, they come down these tunnels and then they make, you know, chicken thighs. There's literally a championship belt. It's not, it's not just that it looks like WWE. There's actually a big gold yeah. belt. And, um, you know, I don't know. I can't, I can't decide if the chefs are acting when they say this is the biggest biggest deal in cooking competitions, the toughest. But it, it is a tough field. I mean, there's no question about it. It's certainly hard to make it through five, you know, one-on-one challenges and win the thing. Like, I, I, don't, I don't dispute that part of it. What I have a problem with is the fact that the high seeds are all people with Food Network, like, development deals. Um, yeah, well, there, so, is, so, so, there is Jose, there is, there is Jose Garces, Iron Chef Jose Garces, who is a number two seed. But yeah, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, Antonio LaFaso uh, was the number one seed. And, you know, and, Antonio and, LaFaso is Well, a, it's, it's, is important, a, it's important to point out who the eighth seed was that faced her. It was, it was Shota from, uh, from what, Portland? The Portland season of Top Chef, who... Yeah. You know, by all rights, should have been a top seed on his own. He's an amazing cook, and and lo and behold, he beat Antonia quite easily in the first round. Yeah, um, it, it, well, exactly. So they and they they played it like off like it was some sort of upset. But you know, I just feel like the longer someone becomes a, you know, spends time just like judging and cooking on Food Network shows, the further away they get from being an actual chef. I mean, they, I don't want to say... Well, they sort of... I don't want to say these people are... I mean, I, I mean, yeah, sure, they could outcook you and me in the kitchen. There's no question about that. They're very successful. And it's, they, almost, they got so it's, it's almost a phenomenon. Like, they, they sort of get brainwormed the way that people do who only listen to, like, left-wing media or right-wing media, right? Like, there's... They sort of adopt the Food Network mentality about cooking which is not necessarily the same mentality that somebody coming in for the fine dining world is going to have. And, and the dishes all look great and whatever, but they're playing to the crowd, you know? They make, yeah. for, for lack of a better term, like they make very sort of like populist, um, you know, it's not oat cuisine. It's not meant to be like this. It's like they cook like fucking Guy Fieri cooks. It's, it's, 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's, well, it's, it's, but then, it, then it's judged by this panel of like esteemed restaurateurs who are also under contract with the Food Network. Yes. You know, and, and, it's and bizarre. Are, the whole thing is bizarre. Who are yeah. not as who are, who are not as brainwormed like somebody like somebody like Jonathan Waxman, who is legitimately a legend in California cuisine, and you know, owned very important restaurants in New York and that kind of thing. He's a frequent judge on this on this show, and like his his mentality is not been um like adapted to the food network mindset he's still being very critical but he's yeah, being he's, very he's, he, it's shocking when he says something like this isn't very good he's being very critical of these dishes that are like you said it's like uh, because of the randomizer element it's like dodge uh, chicken thighs and you know <laughs> baby corn and a spiralizer and yeah. boozy and and they just come out with these you know insane creations it's ter- it's really like I mean I watch it because I am you know I'm a fan of the sport, uh, right. but at the same time you compare it to something like Top Chef, which is the original cooking competition of this yeah. type, if not or if not the original, certainly the um, you know the best of, of them, and you know you're watching that these these things happen, and it, there's no comparison. It's like the, the, um, the tournament of champions is the idiocracy. Of Top Chef, you know, it is like it is like you know, or if you put cooking competitions through a multiplicity machine, uh, to borrow from an old Michael Keaton comedy, the Tournament of Champions is what's going to come out, or maybe guys grow. And that's the thing too is like they're it's got it's kind of like takes these fine dining chefs and turns them into these guys grocery games contestants. Well, there are, there are, there's a li- there's literally a play in of guys grocery games winners to to give a give it even a more or sorry a more populous feel that it already has there are there are essentially like you know caterers on this thing who all lost yeah. by the way yeah of course they got they get clobbered in the first round by uh by top by top chef winners like stephanie izard you know yeah. who, 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 who is who, again oh, vastly overqualified so to be on the show oh she's so nervous to be on tournament champions all right but but let's cycle back right like so you so like top chef is obviously the pinnacle and tournament of champions is I mean, it's got somewhere, a great feel. Somewhere in the middle. I mean, the, the talent right. level is high enough that I can't quite call it the nadir, but it yeah, has but it has a lot of the, fe- all, the features of the nadir. There's there's so many sloppy uh, uh, shows. You know, there's chef versus chef, extreme chef edition. You know, chef challenge. <laughs> you know, you know, no matter what time you turn on the Food Network, there's people who are doing battle in a kitchen, being judged by people who they were judging doing another battle, and it's just it's just nonsense. So I guess the question is, you know, to circle back to Top Chef World All-Stars, what is – is that uh, leaking out into the world? Is that a sort of American style of cooking competition of that winner-take-all battle royale cooking competition? Is that leaking out into the world, and what does that mean for food? Well, I mean, it can't be it, – it, it can't help but be a little bit of its own sort of circuit, right? Like there are they're, they're characters that come back. They obviously know who's popular. Um, a lot of times they bring back old, old, old contestants as judges. Like that's been that's been the case for years and years. I mean, I, I don't think the exportation of the Top Chef format to worldwide markets is necessarily a bad thing. There was a great article in the Times last week about how the production company actually localizes it and sort of what went into the like the casting procedure for this season. Um, you know, I think that this is a really adaptable format for pretty much like any culture in that it, it tries to 
tries to go outside its comfort zone all the time, right? The American version, like they're, they don't just sort of stick around with the cliches. They, they did a really great job of this in Houston. It wasn't just, you know, stakes. They, right. They Although I do like the fact this season is in London. So I like the fact that, you know, you're, you're not going to have a rodeo challenge. No, you're not going <laughs> to have a rodeo. You're not going to have a rodeo challenge, but you're definitely going to have something in a pub. You're definitely going to have something with a black cab. Like they're, they will play into the, They'll play into the cultural expectations of the place they're in, but they will twist it. That that is sort of my understanding of Top Chef after the last few years. You're gonna have to uh, you're gonna have to cook for um, for Kate and William's uh, <laughs> uh, next second child's fifth birthday party, huh? Huh? No, I mean, I wouldn't, they, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it past them at this point. They could probably hook that up if they wanted to. They're very powerful. As you said, as you said in your piece, you know, British cuisine is no longer uh, bangers and mash and mushy peas. Um, it, it, you know, London is like the the ultimate oat cuisine dining destination. Pretty, pretty much, yeah. And and honestly, it's not just London either. Like, I wh- one of my favorite uh, restaurant critics is Jay Rayner from the Guardian and, and Grace Dent from the Guardian too, and they do a lot of like travel afield to parts of England that are, are way off the beaten path, even for the English. And, and they go to Scotland and Wales too, and sort of see like what's happening in Cardiff, what's happening in Edinburgh or, or God knows where. And those are often the most interesting pieces to read, not because they're like less critical of them because they're smaller towns, but because there really are a lot of great sounding chefs doing cool things in places that, you know, don't really have a culinary scene in the UK. And I think that's, that's interesting. I think that that's true of a lot of places in, in the U S too, but like the, the compactness of the UK means that there's more access to local ingredients across the country. And a lot of people have sort of jumped on that and are, are, are really beginning to investigate what British food means in a, in a, in a positive way. So Top Chef London, it, it's the sort of uh, the, the beginning of uh, the, a craze for, for neo-British cuisine in the United States. It's going <laughs> uh, to be the new Pan-Asian. Uh, Top Chef London, Top Chef World All-Stars is airing now. Um, and in a few weeks, uh, about I think 12 weeks, you'll see a final featuring Buddha and Begonia and then one other person who will lose to either one of them. Correct. All right. Daniel Cohen. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, enjoy enjoy a nice uh, a nice full English today. I, I I will, although I never really got into the whole black pudding thing. You're missing out, man. There's uh, today's challenge is to reinvent the classic black pudding. Great! I can't <laughs> I can't wait to see what they do with all that blood. <laughs> all right, thanks, Daniel Cohen. Top Chef season twenty is now airing on Bravo. Although I'm watching it on Peacock, which is nice because it doesn't have uh, any commercials when you watch things on Peacock. So that uh, it just makes it it's a quick, quicker meal. Let's put it that way. It's always nice to not have commercials. The Mandalorian also doesn't have commercials. If you pay for the version of Disney Plus that doesn't have commercials. And that's, uh, yeah, like I said, on Disney Plus. And Scott Gold was here to explain it all to me. Boy, he really understands a lot about Star Wars. I wish I wish I understood that much about any one thing, but I do not. Uh, also, Samuel Porteous was here to talk about Shazam! Fury of the Gods, which is in theaters now and will probably be on the HBO Discovery thing, whatever they're calling it, streaming service, fairly soon. I don't think that's, that one's going to linger 
very long. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We will be back next week with more exciting pop culture coverage. I will talk to you then. You can buy the books discussed on the Book and Film Globe podcast at The Book House, Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to the Bookhouse Milburn, M-I-L-L-B-U-R-N.com to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit our actual physical site in Milburn, New Jersey, where you can buy books from all the authors featured on The Dark Word and the Book and Film Globe podcasts. The Bookhouse Milburn.com.